0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, taking stock of all the players eyeing Microsoft's potential deal with TikTok, from other international tech companies to the US government.
1: On Wall Street and banker parlance, by the way, they call that tipping the waiter but I don't think we've ever tipped a government uh, for a transaction.
0: Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz is pushing for long-term support for small businesses affected by the coronavirus pandemic.
2: It is no longer a crisis. This is a five alarm emergency in which I believe all roads should lead to small business relief in any stimulus package.
0: Those stories plus Apple's race to $2 trillion and it's back to school season. But this year, parents are adding more than just school supplies to their to-do lists. The
3: fact that parents are going to be struggling with how to facilitate remote learning while also working, this affects employers.
0: It's Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. SquawkPod begins right now.
4: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Scott Wapner. Joe is out today. Scott, welcome. Was that really your first day to be doing this from home yesterday?
5: It was, it was. Took a little while to get used to it, certainly at the beginning, but now I feel at home, literally, and that's where we are. Cheers.
0: (laughs) So to speak. First up on today's podcast, tech and the platform that's finally got adults talking, TikTok. Tech stocks have been on a tear. Salesforce, Microsoft, and Facebook all hit record highs this week. But leading the charge is Apple. Last Friday, Apple gained over 10% in one day. Yesterday, the stock closed at an all-time high, and now Apple is just a few percentage points away from hitting a $2 trillion market cap. The golden number to get it there? $467.77 a share. And it looks like Apple will hit this milestone before its four-to-one stock split goes into effect at the end of this month. The other tech companies in the headlines this week, TikTok, beloved by teens, commonly misunderstood by adults, and now a chess piece in international business and diplomacy. Here's Andrew ross We've
1: been talking TikTok and Microsoft and all of what's happening in Washington. Well, CBC's own Eunice Yoon reporting now that it's not just Microsoft, but two other tech firms that are in talks with TikTok's owner, ByteDance, over a possible sale. In time, President Trump said yesterday he was ready to approve a purchase of the U.S. operations of TikTok. But then he said he's only willing to do it if the government receives a lot of money in exchange. Listen to this.
6: Whether it's Microsoft or somebody else or if it was the Chinese, what, what the price is, the United States could, should get a very large percentage of that price because we're making it possible. Without us, you know, I use the expression, it's like uh, the landlord and the tenant. And without the lease, uh, the tenant doesn't have the value. Well, we're sort of, in a certain way, the lease. We make it possible to have this great success. TikTok's a tremendous success, but a big portion of it's in this country.
1: So from the sale directly. It would come, would come from,
6: from the-, the sale, yeah. Whatever the number is, would, it would come from the sale.
1: On Wall Street and banker parlance, by the way, they call that tipping the waiter. But I don't think we've ever tipped a government <laughs> uh, for a transaction. <laughs> President Trump said he told Microsoft CEO that a very substantial portion of the price it's going to have to come into the treasury of the united states because quote we're making it possible for this deal to happen i was on the phone by the way with the, you know people involved in this transaction deal teams on all sides who heard that yesterday couldn't really even make sort of you know heads or tails <laughs> of what the president that. was saying how exactly would you pay the government what would that look like could there be a formulation where Ultimately, you come to some kind of transactional agreement and then you announce that you're making some kind of infrastructure investment in the in the United States or you're going to create some kind of jobs. I'm mean, literally this is the conversation that's happening inside the room I, among these believe, companies. I, you know, if we, when, if, we, if we if we created some amount of companies without would, would that do it? It's unbelievable. It I, when I
4: first heard it reported yesterday, when I first heard it reported yesterday, I thought, oh, he's just saying this stuff off the cuff. He doesn't really mean it. Then I saw what he actually said. And I thought, wow, he does mean it. I don't even know how you could possibly, as, as somebody who's working on this deal, come up with anything that makes any sense. And Steve Ballmer, Steve Ballmer was with us yesterday and said as a shareholder, as the, the top shareholder in Microsoft, right. he would love to see this deal get done at the right price. I
1: think it's an exciting proposition for Microsoft uh, obviously, it
2: depends on the price. Price is important, and as well as whatever restrictions uh, come with it from a government perspective. But I think it's an exciting avenue for Microsoft to really increase its consumer base.
4: I don't know how you figure out any sort of pricing or right pricing when you have to then go in and add some significant number on top that you'd be paying to the U.S. Treasury.
1: Well, what I think is going to happen is, because this is a bit of a valuation game, Um, And I hate to say we're going to be using Trump valuation, but I think that what's going to happen is they're going to effectively uh, create a higher valuation for the overall business, then kind of create something where they can say we're giving you something and that ByteDance is giving it. That's the other important part. Uh, The view, at least from what I understand internally among these groups, is that the money has to come out of China, not out of a U.S. company. So you're going to have to make it appear, whatever the, whatever it is that you're giving, it's going to have to appear that China's not getting it. Part of that's because Peter Navarro and others don't, frankly, want U.S. money, you know, 10, 20, 30 billion, 40 billion dollars ending up in the hands of China for this. So there's so many sort of back okay, and but forth China pieces. China has but already weighed in. Did I you, just, guys, I mean, did you guys hear how crazy, China has already crazy. weighed in on this
4: today? That China has weighed in yes. on this today through some of the states' media, where they are saying that, you know, the U.S. is basically stealing this and, and trying to do, take off with this, that it's a rogue nation now at this point. So the idea that you are going to come up with something that satisfies the Trump administration and at the same time satisfies but, the, the communist government in China, good luck with that. I, I mean, this is—they're going to get caught in between the two, situa- the two with this, because even though China may not— you know, necessarily be looking for some of the same angles. It's not going to say, okay, it's okay for the U.S. Right. to come out looking like this and stealing our company. And don't worry about it, CEO of TikTok, uh, you know, or, or ByteDance. Don't worry about it. Uh, we'll live with that sort of a kind of a slap in the face. Yeah, it, well, it, it still all overshadows understand. too.
5: Um, all this stuff so, we're talking about. Yep. It, I'm sorry, Andrew. It, it, it overshadows the, no, the the lead of the story, right? And and that's that there hmm. are possibly other suitors. For the U.S. part yes. of, of TikTok. We, we, we talked yesterday, um, you know, Andrew, about, well, maybe, you know, media companies would be interested in this property. Now, you know, the, the wording here that, that we use or that Eunice uh, was reporting was other tech you companies, said, yeah. which, which makes it even more yeah. interesting at who these other tech companies uh, may be.
4: And, and are they based in the U.S. or are they elsewhere? Well,
1: I think yeah. it would be very I, – I would imagine it would be very hard for a Google or an Amazon or an Apple, et cetera – to try to buy this company, given the, the, the antitrust pressures on them. I think my understanding was that the White House preferred, like the Microsoft choice, uh, from a regulatory perspective. So it's all very interesting. By the way, the other piece of this, and this is the part I really don't understand, if you're Apple today, you know, we're talking about this $2 trillion market cap that keeps going up and up and up, given the, mm. given the China risk. Now, now maybe, look, they, you know Foxconn's employing hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, that are making these phones. So maybe they can't just say to Tim Cook, good luck to you. But I would think that there would be risk if, if we do this to a, to a TikTok, what kind of uh, backlash, reciprocal uh, you know, backlash is China going to have for some US company yeah. that's doing business there? Well, that's the part I don't understand. The same, and not built the, into any of the but stocks the, the right same, now. It, it's, it's no different
5: than the same conversations we were having during the depths of the, the trade war, right? We had these same conversations. You know, if if we push too hard, if the tariffs are too punitive, companies are, are companies like Apple the ones that are going to face the, the pushback or the retaliation in some way. And I, I think it's fair to say that that, you know, that
4: never really came. Back to these two tech companies. I mean, she didn't say where those tech companies were based. And, right. and I wonder what the U.S. would do with that if it, if it was being pursued by a company, another technology company, not based in China, but not based in the United States either. How would CFIUS see something like that? And would they still threaten to, to turn off the, the app in the United States if it was not a U.S. company?
0: Next on Squawk Pod, Howard Schultz, former CEO of Starbucks, is speaking up
2: for small business. If we continue down this path with no significant stimulus, we estimate that between 35 and 45 percent of the 30 million small businesses in America will begin to permanently close by Labor Day.
0: We'll be right back. This is Squawk Pod with Andrew Ross Sorkin, Becky Click, and Scott Wapner. Here's Andrew.
1: The biggest issue right now for the economy and for millions of Americans is the fate of the next federal stimulus package. Congress has been unable to strike a deal, even as emergency benefits expired last Friday. Yesterday, more than 100 current and former CEOs from companies like Starbucks, Merck, Walmart, uh, Alphabet, and so many others uh, made a call to action, signing a letter to top negotiators asking for urgent aid not for their own businesses, but for small businesses. The CEOs say there could be catastrophic results for the economy if those businesses are allowed to fail. We're joined by the man who organized that letter to congressional leaders, former Starbucks chairman and CEO Howard Schultz. Howard, thank you for joining us this morning. I want to talk about this letter, uh, what it took to put together, and, and in particular, how much money at this point you think we're talking about? Well,
2: first off, I think
1: we need to frame the problem. Since
2: since February, over 3 million small businesses have closed. And if we continue down this path with no significant stimulus that basically is a bridge to the vaccine for every small business in America, we estimate that between 35 and 45 percent of the 30 million small businesses in America will begin to permanently close by Labor Day. Now, this situation will have such a significant catastrophic effect on the economy, and none more so than the fact that so many of these businesses are owned and operated by minorities and African Americans. And so it is no longer a crisis. This is a five-alarm emergency in which I believe, and I think the 100 CEOs who signed this letter in support of the Restart Act, believes that all roads should lead small business to release in any stimulus package that Congress approves.
1: So what are we talking about here? In this letter you write federally guaranteed loans is what you want at favorable terms that will enable small businesses to transform and sustain themselves through 2020 and well into 2021. Support must last longer than just the next two or three months and that's really a signal I imagine uh, in terms of the timing that people now think we may or may not have a vaccine. So this is going to be longer than a, than a lot of us want. But what is? It? But in terms of dollar terms, what do you think that looks like then?
2: Well, let me just be clear, because what you just read is very important to make sure people understand. This is not a bottomless handout. This is low-interest money, federally backed by the government, that will be paid back over time. However, I do believe that the business is facing the most dire consequences in terms of their inability to survive should be given forgiveness at certain points. But we are probably talking about the kind of money that is close to a trillion dollars. Now, as, as large as that sounds, the, the, the economic shortfall of not doing this is much, much greater. And if you just do the math, not only are we talking about small business across the country closing, but we're talking about massive levels of unemployment. In addition to that, and this is really critical, the municipalities across the country, every city and every state is facing insolvency in terms of their budget. If these businesses close, the tax revenue alone is so significant. And so the ripple effect on this is not just the business itself, it's also the social fabric of every community. These are mom and pop businesses, these are restaurants, these are beauty salons. These are the lifeblood of every community. America will never look the same, and these businesses will permanently close and never reopen. And so this is not time for, for politics. This is really a defining moment of how bipartisanship and American capitalism can benefit the American worker, small businesses, and the American people at large. This is so vitally important. Let me restate this. It's not crisis anymore. We are on the clock. And in fact, 100 people I'd have had many, many more if we had the time. And it wasn't just CEOs pushing 500 companies. It was small businesses across the country. And so when you're looking at the fact that small businesses represent approximately 44% of, of private uh, sector workers representing 44% of the GDP, this is a, a, such a – nothing has ever been like this in American history that we can look, be looking at the wipeout of every small business in the country over the next couple of years. And if I can explain very easily. These businesses do not have the cash to retrain their people. They don't have the cash to buy inventory. They don't have the cash to buy rent. It's it's very, and it's not, not a big business. that would month to month. And they are desperate right now. And a week is like a year to them. And the small businesses that I've talked to are in such dire conditions.
4: Hey, hey, Howard, I, I think a big part of the question, no uh, no argument that this is a, an emergency for small businesses everywhere, but I, I think part of the question for lawmakers has to be, how do you define small businesses and, and how do you go about giving these loans? I mean, we, we had a a restaurateur who owns 60 restaurants across the country yesterday who says he needs more money in PPP. His business has gone from being at about 75 percent of normal rates in June to about 50 percent. He said he can't survive with that. He obviously has a lot of employees. And by the way, he doesn't just want loans. He says he'll never be able to dig out from under that. He wants loans that will be forgiven if he keeps these people employed. What do you say to somebody like that?
2: Well, what I say is that These businesses are now operating at approximately 50% of revenue since they've reopened. And so they they can't survive. The the question you're asking is the right question. I understand that. But the the solution has to be the fact that we we as a country, uh, the leaders in Congress, just can't let these businesses fall to their own. But let me restate, we're not asking for free money. This is money that will be paid back over time. But if this gentleman's business is one of those businesses facing a dire situation, then perhaps those businesses and those loans should be forgiven. But when you look at what PPP was designed to do and it was well intended, it it did not fit the bill. It was a short term solution, a Band-Aid. We need a long term bridge to the vaccine that saves the economic security of every small business in America. And it's not just the business. It's the social fabric of every community. And the fact is that you've got a Republican from Indiana, a Democrat from from Colorado. Forty seven senators have signed this act right now. This is bipartisanship at its best. This is the centrist vision that I had when I was thinking of running for president. But this is so vitally important right now to remove the politics and get this done.
5: Howard, it's Scott. Good morning to you. If you were a small business today, if you were, say, in the early days of the, the Starbucks years and you were facing the kind of issues that you're, you're dealing with today and other small businesses are, are dealing with, what would you do? H- how would you handle the, the, the current the crisis when it pertains to your employees? How do you think about that as a small business owner yourself at one point?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that question because in 1987, Starbucks had 11 stores and 100 employees. We were a very similar small business of many businesses today. And so many of these businesses could become the next Starbucks. It's really important to consider that. But these small businesses are like a family. They love and respect their people. They don't view them as employees they are trying to protect them. And of course, in trying to answer that question, you would try and do everything you can to preserve the health and welfare and the security of every employee and their family. But at certain points, you can't do it. And I was asked, could Starbucks have survived this situation in 1987? And the answer is probably not, unless there was some mechanism for the federal government to step in and save these businesses. So, so many of these businesses and entrepreneurs are the
1: future opportunity of large businesses for the future of the country. Howard, let me ask you this, though. To the degree that there are small businesses that today, at least potentially for the next several months, if not longer, depending on your your optimism around the vaccine, that they're, that they're quote-unquote uneconomic businesses, that, that effectively they can't really be in business right now, given, given the circumstances. The question is, what should they be doing? Should they be taking loans and using those loans to pay their people? Should those people go on unemployment? Should they be taking loans to continue to pay the rent so that, that when and if there is a vaccine, they can come back? I mean, I think there's some real questions yeah. about how loans should be used, whether they should, effectively should be used, as a employment device, if you will, even if there is no business behind it at the moment.
2: So I've been hosting webinars for small businesses, small business owners, just to try and walk in their shoes and understand with great specificity what it is they're dealing with. These small businesses, many of whom were able to take PPP, can no longer on any level afford any debt. So them taking on a loan right now to pay their people or pay the rent or do anything to try and stay in business, they just can't absorb the debt. And that's why you're seeing so many of these businesses now permanently close. And, of course, they are encouraging their people, which is perverse, to take the unemployment. But, as you know, that's going to run out. And so the, the situation is so, so dire. And every day that goes by in which Speaker... Pelosi and Leader McConnell and members of Congress are not acting and not walking in the shoes of these business people who deserve an opportunity, a lifeline, is just a terrible situation
1: for them in the country. One of the other questions I wanted to ask you about is whether you think ultimately we're not going to need just money to get to the other side, but we're ultimately going to need what might be described as a restart fund, meaning when and if these businesses actually get to get to the place where they actually have to quote-unquote, quote, restart, whether not only do they have to, if they can have enough money to get to, to even still be in business, but when they get there, they may have to make additional investments. And how we should think about that.
2: Well, I, I Andrew, I haven't thought about a restart fund, but I, I certainly can envision if this, if, if COVID and the way in which the, the, the virus is spreading and kind of the boomerang of, of cities across the country, if that continues into next year at this rate, without any hope of a vaccine or a remedy, then certainly uh, we're going to see our situation in which the $26 trillion of debt is going to be expanded by the country's inability to stay afloat. And we're going to have to do more. But, you know, the importance of that question, I understand. But at this point in time, we must take care of small businesses. And I I just think the the responsibility, uh, the heartfelt responsibility on members of Congress, especially since 47 senators have signed this, equally Republicans and Democrats, led by Senator Bennett, and Senator Young, this is a moment in which every aspect of stimulus must lead through small businesses.
1: Let me ask you one other question that, that relates to this: is which is, how do you think we ultimately should be paying for all of this? There's an argument to be made that once again, uh, we are uh, socializing the losses and will when, when and if things get better, privatizing the gains.
2: Well, I think, Andrew, you and I had a conversation at uh, at DealBook, I think was three years ago, which I was at at that time very critical of of the current, uh, what was certainly being suggested, which is the corporate tax rate going to 20, 21 percent. But I I think we're going to have to look for ways uh, for American businesses and large corporations to do their share uh, in, in ways that are different than it is today. And certainly the country is going to have a massive burden uh, to deal with the $26 trillion of debt uh, that is on the balance sheet of America, and future generations are going to have to pay for that. But we're going to, we, we've are we got a lot to sort out, very complex problems, uh, but we, we must stay optimistic about the future of the country, which is so significantly intertwined with small businesses, which represent the engine of the economy and kind of the the heartfelt aspect of entrepreneurism.
1: Hey, Howard, uh, before we let you go two two quick questions. One relates to Starbucks, uh, the company, uh, the company that I know, you know and love so very much. Uh, it has been hard hit by the by the virus, uh, by the coronavirus around the country. The, the company's trying to make a lot of uh, progress to try to, to try to stay open in so many different places. The market's seen past it. What do you think about all that?
2: Uh, Well, you know, I think Starbucks, like other uh, brick-and-mortar retailers and restaurants that depended so much on pedestrian traffic, uh, certainly had to adjust and pivot. I think Kevin Johnson and the team have done an extraordinary job. The business, in terms of the last conference call, I'm I'm no longer operationally involved, but certainly listen very carefully. The company is uh, really coming back very strongly. And I think in terms of the stock price and the market cap of the company, From my point of view, it's dramatically undervalued, and long-term shareholders will be rewarded. But Starbucks, uh, given its uh, national footprint, uh, how well the company has come back in China, uh, these are still early days for the growth and development of Starbucks, and long-term shareholders will be rewarded.
5: Howard, uh, it's it's Scott again. And on that note, a great part of of Starbucks' growth opportunity has been in China, obviously. Uh, That was a key part of of your uh, philosophy on where to grow Starbucks internationally. And I'm just wondering, you know, we're talking about uh, the, the ratcheted up tensions between our two countries. And now we're, we're dealing with the TikTok talks between that company and Microsoft. But if, if you're a CEO trying to grow your business in China, how do you navigate what appears to be a much more difficult landscape?
2: Uh, I appreciate the question, having spent so much time in China over the last 20 years and Starbucks has a footprint there of 5,000 stores and opening a store every day. And I'm very close to that business, the people who run it, and very proud of what we've done. Uh, I'm going to say something that I know will be controversial, but I I think when people take a step back and listen to it, maybe they'll understand. Uh, Certainly, this administration has ratcheted up uh, the situation between U.S. and China relations. And I certainly understand that there are political issues to deal with uh, that are very significant and very complex. I always viewed Russia as an enemy of America, but I always viewed China as a competitor, not an enemy. And I think the country and the United States government and certainly business leaders would be so so well served if we were able to bridge the gap and recognize that China and the U.S., are going to have to create a co-authorship of how do we live together, recognizing that we are fierce competitors, uh, that we have differences in the way we govern, uh, we have differences in politics, uh, but the world would be much better, much safer, and the economy globally would be much better served if America and China could create an opportunity for us to work together. And I think that over the last three years, unfortunately, uh, that has not been the case. I, I do understand that there are significant issues. Don't don't misunderstand me. But creating this kind of situation, I don't think, is, is in best interest of anyone in America, let alone business people. But certainly the American people would be better served to try and understand how we can get along with China as a significant competitor, not an enemy, Uh, where where I believe that Russia is a very different story and an enemy of the country.
4: Hey Howard, I I, I I can understand your perspective on it. You you may think that they're less of a of, of an enemy because you don't have intellectual property that they're ripping off from you when you're selling co- coffee. But when you look at what's taken place and some of the accusations that have been leveled in terms of whether there are security risks uh, with information going back and forth, whether that be Huawei or TikTok or anything else, do you, do you think that there's any truth to that, because well, that, that does yes, come from the do. perspective as, whether they're co- as to whether they're a competitor yeah. or, a, or an enemy.
2: No, I, I, I certainly do agree with everything you just said. And that is why, from my perspective, we would be better served to address those issues and solve those problems if we approached it in a different way. But I certainly agree with you. And d- don't uh, put me in a box and think because I, I run a coffee company that I don't understand and not sensitive to the issues of piracy and intellectual property. I certainly do. Uh, but I don't, I don't think the way in which we are going to achieve our objectives is the current way in which we are negotiating or dealing with that country.
1: Howard, uh, we appreciate you joining us uh, very, very much, and we appreciate the work that you're doing on this. Uh, we do hope to talk to you again uh, very soon.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, it's back to school season, but parents are concerned about much more than school supplies.
1: COVID really drove a
0: tank over a crumbling infrastructure. We never built a system that works for
3: working parents.
0: We'll be right back. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations. Helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com/meetingdemand.
1: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. <laughs> Okay, no flying cars,
5: but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait, Auto Trader.
0: Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Small business struggles and tech stocks are, of course, part of the larger pandemic landscape. Although, finally, some relatively positive news on case numbers, at least the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. may be showing signs of slowing down. We've reported fewer than 50,000 cases for the second day in a row. As of Monday, California reported fewer than 6,000 new cases for the first time since early July, and Florida reported fewer than 5,000 for the first time since June. That said, New Jersey is seeing a marginal uptick in COVID transmissions. In response, Governor Phil Murphy is clamping back down on indoor gatherings. He's moving the maximum group size from 100 people down to 25. As cases rise and fall across the country, schools in the South and the Midwest have begun reopening for the fall semester. New school supplies and book lists have, in some cases, been overshadowed by COVID-19 outbreaks, reclosings, and quarantines in school communities. Some Georgia, Mississippi, and Indiana schools have been open just over a week, and the rest of the country is watching closely. President Trump himself has voiced his own position on the start of school.
6: In our current phase, we must focus on protecting those at highest risk while allowing younger and healthier Americans to resume work and school with careful precautions. Ideally, we want to open those schools. We want to open them.
0: Local governments in New York and California are debating whether to reopen their own schools. And once they do, how many positive COVID tests it'll take to shut them back down. Parents waiting for guidance from their children's schools are concerned about childcare and at-home learning, and educators are anxious to walk into classrooms while the virus
4: still spreads. Here's Becky Quick. Joining us right now to talk about this is Julie Cashin. She's senior fellow and director for women's economic justice at the Century Foundation. And Julie, this is a a situation where I don't envy any of the people who are making decisions on this, parents about whether to send their kids back to school, um, teachers about whether to go back to school, administrators and superintendents in in terms of how they they start this up again in the fall. Um, Where do you come down on this? What do you think?
3: I think that's exactly right that without stopping the spread of the virus, we have left everyone with impossible choices. You know, and, and what's going to happen is equity is going to be what's impacted the most. So for gender equity, because women are going to bear the burden, women are going to be the ones who are, you know, stepping back from their jobs, reducing their work hours, taking care of kids. It's about racial equity because in communities of color there already was not enough. Equality in the schools, and it's just going to be worse if schools are closed. Uh, so it's kind of a no-win situation. Parents were already, you know, running a marathon while holding their kids on their back, and now they're also juggling fire. It's just impossible.
4: Yeah, I think a lot of us have been looking at this like if we can just get to the summer, next year is going to be fine. The fall season will will bring us back to a more normal life. And, and the closer we get to it, the less and less it's looking like that. A lot of schools are choosing to open, though, in person and then offering um, online learning for the people who, who don't feel comfortable going back. Is that a fair trade?
3: Uh, I think it's a really tough choice even then. I think the biggest thing we need is a significant federal investment. This should be our number one priority. The fact that parents are going to be struggling with how to facilitate remote learning while also working, this affects employers and has major ripple effects for them. You know, we should be investing everything that's needed and then letting local communities get creative and figure out the solutions that work best for them.
5: Yeah. Julie, hi. It's, it's Scott. It's nice to see you this morning. Hi, the, Scott, the Wall Street too- Journal is out with an opinion piece this morning that I wanted your uh, your own opinion on. When it comes to how teachers should be handling all this, they say, quote, teachers or teachers unions are using COVID-19 as a political weapon. And they call this, this this push for more money political extortion. Those are their words. How should teachers handle this and how would you respond to what the, the journal op ed is saying this morning?
3: If you think about political extortion, if you look at what the what Congress has passed so far, so much money, billions and billions of dollars have gone to bailout industry. Teachers are getting the least, right? Teachers are, are not paid enough. They already spend their own dollars for school supplies, right? Are we going to be asking them to buy masks and PPE and cleaning supplies too? that's not fair. You know, we're we're not treating teachers the way they deserve to be treated. And teachers are also parents. So they're struggling with, how do I go to work and also care for my kids? Teachers are caring for their loved ones who are aging too. And they don't want to bring this virus back into their own homes. So I think we need to be centering teachers and the needs of teachers and thinking about how to make this a more equitable solution.
5: Do, do you think we're at risk I mean, of, of mass teacher strikes once, once schools try to reopen? That, that's really what this issue uh, leads to.
3: I think if we are, it's because teachers and schools and the needs of families have not been put first, right? We thought about what do we do about opening bars before we thought about how do we sell for schools and child care? And so you know, I think if people are rising up I totally understand why, because we are not prioritizing the people we should be prioritizing. We're sending everyone out on their own. We're saying it's every family for themselves, every school for themselves, every teacher for themselves. That's not what this country is about. We should all be coming together to come up with the collective solutions that we all need.
4: Hey, Julie, I have to admit, I I don't know what the solution is. I I hear what you're saying about teachers who have kids at home that they're caring for and maybe elders that they're caring for, too. But how do we get to the point where we have care solutions for their kids so they can go back when the teachers don't want to go back either? I mean, it just, you know, it's this chicken and egg kind of intractable position. And I I have to admit, I've gone round and round in my head. I'm not sure how to fix it.
3: I'm right there with you. I don't know what we're going to do with our first grader in the fall either. So it's a problem that we're all facing. But, you know, part of the problem is that we, COVID really, like drove a tank over a crumbling infrastructure. Like we never built the bridge. We never built a system that works for working parents. We never figured out how do you work and also care for kids. And so now we're just reaping what you know what we sowed. We, we are coming to the, wow, this is really impossible. So we need to think about what are those building blocks? How do we put the significant public dollars behind childcare, behind equity in schools, behind our teachers, behind our childcare providers, and also do things like paid leave for all so that parents have more options and that parents don't feel like it's on them to solve for themselves.
4: Yeah, parents feel like it's on them to decide it for themselves. Every school district feels like it's on them to try and figure this out. I think we're all going to kind of feel our way through this um, as it gets a little uh, deeper into the fall and and, and kids really go back to to school in in mass. Anyway, Julie, thank you for your time today. Uh, We appreciate your thoughts. Thank you very much.
0: That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at six a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow at Capella University.